the Links and Locks podcast. Better than most. Better than most. Better than most. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. Four. You got real talent. Don't concentrate on golf. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Links and Locks, the golf betting podcast from the Action Network, presented by Bet365. I'm your host today, Spencer Aguiar, and I'm happy to be joined by my trusted partner, Nick Brettwish, as the two of us will be taking you through the sport for this week's Waste Management Open. Unfortunately, our usual leader of this podcast, Roberto Arguello, will not be able to join us here today, but we look forward to getting him back into the mix next week when we tackle Riviera Country Club. Nick, before we start handicapping the mayhem that is the Waste Management Open, give me your best bet for this event. Best bet, lock of the week, hammer kid play of the week. We are going hammer kid play of the year, I guess, so far, because we have not had one yet in this lovely 2023. Tommy Fleetwood, top 40. Um, a lot of the market seems to be right around even money. You can get plus 120 out there if you go price shopping. Let's go get it, ball striking Jesus, Tommy Fleetwood. I typically re- recommend a head-to-head wager for this segment. So anytime you hear me say something else, just know it sums up my thoughts to the board. I will have a head-to-head play that I'll give later on in the show, but let's go with JT Poston to come 50th or better on bet 365 at minus 120. As a reminder, the Links and Locks podcast is proudly presented by bet 365, the world's favorite sportsbooks brand. Sign up with promo code ACTION to get bet 365's exclusive sign-up offer in New Jersey and Colorado. Bet $1 on any game, get $200 free. You know, Nick, I want to talk about the course for a second before we move in and out of these markets. There are many different ways that we can try to go about handicapping this board, but do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you found most critical when running your model? Yeah, I I think it's going to be pretty agnostic to any show you're listening to, like off the tee, stroke stand off the tee is going to be very important. Ball striking, this is a ball striker's paradise. Um, the one thing that I weighted a little bit heavier than usual is a stroke scan around the green. It's not something that I've really heard anybody talk about, but just looking at previous finishes, it seems like the top 20 players that gain strokes around the green seem to all finish within the top 50. That doesn't mean a whole lot for all you guys out there hunting outright bets and 60 to 1 you know, bombs like that. It, it's not something that I really look for week to week on the betting board. My favorite market has always been the placements on the top 40 mainly. So that is why I built my numbers the way I did to find players that clean up around the green, especially, you know, you think of some holes like 17. We'll, we'll talk about that real quick. It's a drivable par four. People score on it. Spencer gave me the stats off the show. I believe it plays to 3.7 strokes, you said, so just a little bit under par for the field average. But if you'd miss that green, if you're getting aggressive and driving for it, you do need some serious cleanup, especially, you know, where the pin is. If it's in the back, like obviously, you know, chip shots, short game, that matters a lot when the pin's back there. Um, so just, you know, one hole to kind of visualize because everybody knows 16, 17, and 18, what they look like. They're on TV all the time. It seems like the front nine's kind of the forgotten child of golf at the waste management. But um, overall, that's that's pretty much it. Ball striking from 125 to 175. If some of the players I was looking at, um, like Christian Bazaden, how someone I'm semi-interested in more on the DFS perspective. So we'll save that talk for another show. 
Um, I will extend that approach play a little bit longer for the guys that are shorter off the tee, but pretty much overall fairway finders that can clean up around the green and, you know, ball strikers from the the distance of 125 to 175. Yeah, I saw a 2.3% increase in dispersion of scoring when it came to strokes gain around the green here last year over what you would get in a generic PGA Tour course. Uh, I think the answer to that is probably what you just said. I will have you say it a second time just uh, so we can be on the same page here. But I would say that that probably stems from the par four. You want to be able to clean up your shots there. And I'd say it probably also comes from the par fives. Uh, Aggression is very important. Like aggression is one of the things that I ran in my model that I want guys that are going to be willing to go for the green. Because I think like anybody who's laying up on the short par four, you're just immediately playing behind the field. And anybody on the par fives, that are not in a position that they're trying to go for the green in two shots. If you're in an opportunity, like you're just not going to be able to produce to the rest of the field. And like, we're looking for upside. We're trying to find these answers that work the best way that they can there. So uh, I think in my opinion, if I was to look at this more, it's the dispersion of scoring is probably coming directly from those four holes. Uh, Would you agree with that, Nick? Yeah. And the scoring holes here are what really matter. It's how you separate. Like if you don't make birdies at, at certain holes, especially the par fives, you are setting yourself behind the field and not saying you can't make up for it on non-scoring holes. Like sure you could have a great approach shot from 210 and stick it to four feet and get a tap in birdie that way. But overall, like I I want guys that score on the scoring holes because again, you're going to lose strokes to the field if you don't. Yeah, it's a massive difference in those areas. And I'll very quickly run through this course and some of the things I noticed. So it's TPC Scottsdale, 7,266 yards, par 71. I One of the important things that I want everybody out there to note is the greens are listed as Bermuda. That's overseeded. That's not a true Bermuda texture. So if you are running putting in your model, I would not use Bermuda as the split there. Like look at fast and firm greens in general. If you can you have the capabilities to be able to look at overseeded surfaces. I think that's another way to go about it, but um, I've seen far too many people looking straight Bermuda. And I, I would say that's one of the things that I would not do for this particular setup. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to explain how wild the waste management open will be for anyone new to the sport and experiencing the tournament for the first time. Uh, if that's the case and you are new here and you've stumbled across this show and you're a new fan you know, maybe not understanding how a golf tournament could become mayhem. I just want you to imagine a costume themed frat party that has gone horribly wrong and ended up drunkenly finding its way to the 16th green at TPC Scottsdale. In fairness, the venue's better than its Roman Coliseum gimmick that puts players on display as gladiators fighting for the approval of fans. But it's hard to talk about the event and not go straight into the circus-like atmosphere that's going to jeer anyone who fails to produce and shockingly still manages to boost shots that are decent enough to generate birdie looks. Like, Nick, it's funny. I've seen golfers hit it to, I don't know, 25 feet, put it on the green. And I mean, they're getting like beer cans thrown at them. Just absolute mayhem from the fans there. So it's a very fun tournament. Um, I think from a statistical perspective, a ton of the metrics this week will point in the direction of T to green being a measurable statistic worth considering. Uh, You'll hear me say this on almost every single show that I ever do, but I never love the generic blueprint of those numbers because it doesn't identify course specific needs. Instead, I like to go through, look at the pertinent data at the venue that we're being played at, uh, whether that's here or Pebble Beach last week, or we want to look at Riviera next week. Like it's always going to be the same build of find me the golfers that are 
finding success off the tee approach and around the green in the areas that we need them to find success, like with the dispersion of scoring coming into play. So I think this is a really good example for this venue. We have noted that around the green is going to have an increase, even if it's only, you know, 2.3% or what that number was there. I want to have 2.3% more added to my weighted tee to green number. And I think that's like when you just look at flat, basic totals in general, and that doesn't even need to be tee to green. I mean, we can look at stroke gain off the tee or stroke gain approach is a really good one. The approach numbers always matter with the proximity ranges that are being played. If a course is requiring long iron proximity in, and the majority of the model is looking at short iron proximity, like it's not going to work. So I think that would be my one big piece of advice to everybody out there that if you're able to go through and kind of filter that data out in a different fashion, always try to build things for the tournament that's on hand. I promise you, you're going to have more success doing it that way than taking the flat data there. Uh, that answer kind of encompasses the entire board of what we're looking at with it. But uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of the course in a nutshell. Like I I'm going to look at strokes gain T to green strokes gain total on fast and firm greens strokes gain total at TPC tracks. There's a little bit of weight. That's important there. I looked at weighted par four and par five outputs. Uh, ball striking is something that's super important for me along with that aggression outlook that I talked about. I think all of that becomes more palpable when trying to handicap statistics in my model. Uh, I guess, is there anything else that you would like to add to that, Nick, before we move on um, and before we get into outrights this week? Yeah, I, I guess it'd be good for, uh, I know my take on the situation, so kind of add into that, but the elephant in the room for every golf course, it seems like the public at least wants to talk about course history. This is one of the more predictable courses as well, but going through it, like debutants have a, a lot of success here as well. So well, I guess overall, what are your thoughts on course history? It is one of the tournaments I weighted it more than I usually do. I am not really a course history guy by any means. I think overall for me, the conversation towards towards like DFS when I'm in between a couple players that are right next to each other and I need to cut one or making a single entry and I can only afford one of them. That's usually when I look into course history a little bit more, but especially like matchups too in golf betting, maybe that's a decision you see yourself looking at. But what are your, is your take here for overall course history, given that guys that succeed here tend to succeed here often? And then, you know, we, we talk about players that for the most part are in great form that I seem to, you know, want to find myself getting exposure to a guy like Aaron Wise just struggles here and continues to struggle here. So overall, like, what are your thoughts on course history? Because a lot of people do talk about that. I think the big difference of what you and I do in our models, at least what I've been able to generate over these two years of us doing shows together. I think you add a little bit more putting than I do in general, when you run numbers, I think I probably add a little bit more course history than you do. Now, I will say this based off of the answer that you just gave, this is a very flat distribution of how I looked at course history returns for this tournament. So what I mean by that is, yes, if you go and you look at any site out there, you're going to see this massive increase that takes place for this tournament when it comes to like course history returns of players play well here consistently. I'm not so sure how much I trust some of that. Like, yes, it matters, but we've also seen it. Like, you don't have to look any further than John Rahm. Like when... He's producing every single year at every single tournament. Like a lot right. of those numbers get weighted <laughs> a little bit in certain directions. And this is the first year that we have had this strong of a field at this tournament. I'm not saying that they've been weak tournaments. They've always been pretty respectable fields, but we have 22 of the top 25 players here. And really the only name that's not going to be at this tournament is Will Zalatoris. So 
I don't know how much I necessarily trust some of the course history returns. I think that's an answer that we can pinpoint a little bit better in a couple years. If, if we continue to see a guy like Aaron wise, we'll use him for an example. If he, if he continues to struggle here or one of these guys that has found success over and over again, I guess more on the bottom end of, of this field continues to do that, even in a stronger field, I would be more inclined to push that number up a little bit, but I'm not going out of my way to try to weigh this in such a aggressive fashion to try to build a model that I'm only looking at course history guys. Like in general, for me, I agree. It's something that matters for me on head to head wagers a little bit. Although a lot of the times when you have good course history and we talked about it last week with Troy Merritt in general on that, when I took Grayson Sig over him, like when the public is over inflating course history, I'd kind of rather just go in the opposite direction to begin with. And I've heard a lot of people out there talk about how much course history matters. So if that means that I'm going to be underweight compared to them, like I'm perfectly okay doing that route. 100%. I think the merit example is great. I know I gave the merit example in uh, reasoning to support Scott Piercy and that went horribly wrong, but overall we were, uh, we we're kind of on the ball there. And I think you made a great point too. Like it's, everybody talks about, you know, fading the public in terms of, you know, betting the NFL, you know, take the, 30% of the ticket side, especially if more money's on that side. Like we understand the sharp discrepancies and all of that. And I think you kind of compared that a little bit to the golf betting market too. When everybody's typing up course history, I think you see the sports books do that too. Cause they kind of know, like if I set the bait here, people are going to take that, that course history and just think, okay, that that's all I need to know. He, this course fits his eye. doesn't matter where his game's at or any means like Troy Merritt, perfect example last week games in a horrible spot, but you know, the books are kind of telling you, have faith in them because of course history and every better out there that was interested in Troy Merritt kind of talked themselves into that. So yeah, I, I think that's an excellent answer. Just something that I wanted to talk about on the show here too, because, you know, like you said too, if you're new to golf betting, it is blowing up. It's, it's a really good industry. More markets are being created, especially for these elevated events. You get a lot of cool props out there too. There's obviously going to be hole in one props. If anybody's watched this, like my wife doesn't really watch a whole lot of golf. She just kind of does, in the background because it's always on in our house when it's playing, especially this tournament. And then when they show 16, she watches it. Cause it's a lot of fun. You know, like who, if whether you like golf or not watching people play on 16, watching that crowd, watching that madness, like you talked about that everybody overserved at a frat party type of thing. Like it is fun TV. It's great for golf. It's great for golf to grow, to grow the game. I think it's awesome that, you know, the Super Bowls in Arizona too, like good luck to, uber drivers and everything right now in, in arizona it's going to be an absolute mess but maybe they pick up some more fans football people that are casually watching because they're out there this weekend um just overall just something that i wanted to talk about because no matter who you are if you're getting into golf betting you will read something hear something about course history um just my little warning it sounds like you're on the same page with me just it is not the end all be all by any means in, in terms I, I like you i go the opposite way most times I think that kind of is like the full circle answer of what I was even talking about earlier to where that's why I want to build as unique of numbers as I can. I, the last thing I ever want is to get stuck in the same mindset that everybody is taking. And you could argue that there's different sectors of the industry where it becomes worse to take that route than others. But regardless of the situation, like I don't like groupthink mentality. I don't love building things that are similar. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to fade anything that the rest of the world likes. I, I think as a whole, the betting industry and specifically the golf betting industry are getting much sharper. 
but it doesn't mean that I can't find a way to get unique with my research process within. And that's kind of just what we keep going back to is uh, you don't necessarily have to take everything at face value of what is being said out there. There's a lot of different ways to build a model. There's a lot of unique ways to try to get different with the math that you put into it. And everybody has their own process. Like some are, mine is a very statistical, analytical based reason of why I do everything that I do. It doesn't even mean that you need to go that advanced with it. It's just whatever you're coming up with, you need to have unique ideas and unique um, interpretations to these boards. Because I think when you get stuck into that groupthink mentality, which in my opinion, which no shot in anybody, that's I think a lot of what happened with Troy Merritt last week. A lot of people just saw the course history and immediately ran with it. Like it's a lot more than any one particular market or sector of what you're looking for. What a golfer is expected to do and what you expect them to do are two completely different things. And that's when if you run your numbers in a particular direction that deviates from the masses, that's where you can find your most success and actually find oppositional routes to take that the rest of the world might not be on. I love it. Yeah. I think goodness said it better. All right, Nick. So I saw your tweet earlier about there being seven golfers, I believe, that had higher win equity returns when you ran your math compared to everyone else. Obviously, we can't bet more than a name or two from that list. And maybe the answer is that none had tangible value to even place a wager on. Uh, But do you want to talk to me about who those golfers were and where you landed for your outright card? Yeah, so the top five overall in my implied probabilities, I'll just give you the five, not in any particular order, was Scotty Scheffler, Colin Morikawa, Tom Kim surprisingly hopped up in there with no course history. So again, to kind of pile on to that yeah. point, uh, Xander Shoffley and Rory McIlroy, John Rom being sixth. It's a little alarming for John Rom to be outside that top five. You look at any sports book, let's just say, oh, you know, on average, he's seven to one to win this week. I don't want to be that far away from the betting market. When I look at my numbers, I, I do want to be different. Like you said, I want to build something that's unique. So I did find a little bit of value on Scotty Shuffler. I currently have a proper at 10 and a half to one. Most of the markets at 13 to one. I don't know if there's that big of an edge for me to take Scotty Shuffler there. Um, but I have John Rahm at 13 to one when the market's at seven to one. So you Certainly, I will not be betting John Rahm, at least at that number. Maybe if he, you know, starts slow out of the gate and gets up to 15, 16, I would certainly look at that. So with that said, I'm not saying I don't like John Rahm by any means, but to me, there's no expected value in that ticket. I could be dead wrong, but again, I built my card the way I built my numbers based on data and presumptive data on how I think this tournament will play out. And that's kind of where I got to where I got. Um, Xander, again, I just don't know if I trust the back, so I don't really have any interest there. But overall, I think of those five, the only one that I would contemplate betting right now would be Scotty Scheffler, because I do think 10 and a half to one is is a fair number there. But Rory and John are just getting all the all the plays right now. So, you know, when they're when you got a guy seven and seven to one and eight to one, it's pretty tough to get anybody shorter than 10 to one in that field. Um, so Scotty Scheffler would be the guy of interest that I have. Other than that, the value that I have in the outright market is more on these guys in this 85 to 100 to one range. Do you want to talk about some of those? Yeah. And that's the issue though, too, is like, I don't really believe they have much win equity. So I'm a little bit scared of that, but I found value on Christian Bezadenhout at 200 to one. 
I don't really think he's a winner here. I think he's more of a top 40 play. You can get plus 185 out there in the market. Even then, I think that is a little too short. If Christian Bezadenhout goes to two to one in the top 40 market, I think I'd be a lot more interested there. He's not a great ball striker, but I do like some of the presumptive numbers that I think he'll play out of at this course. He's going to hit a ton of fairways, so he should be safe to make the cut. And that's usually what I want when I'm looking at guys that to, that I like to finish top 40. Um, Siwoo Kim is probably the highest edge I have in terms of the outright market. I have him at 62 to 1. The betting market right now has anywhere from 70 to 80. So I would recommend the 80 to 1 play if you are a Siwoo guy. And then Taylor Pendrith at 150 to 1. Again, I don't really think he can contend here, but what he does off the tee the the iron play is just so variant like it's hit or miss and but again i think maybe he's a younger guy that could thrive in this environment i think what he does off the tee if he he hits fairways he can compete short game's not bad um and then aaron wise somehow i suckered myself in to take him at 85 to 1 so quick summary aaron wise christian bezadenhout siwoo kim and taylor pendrith but i did leave room on my card for a stud i did a stud being let's say 25 to 1 or shorter I haven't decided on who that guy's going to be yet. I think it'll be Scotty Shuffler. Interested in, I should have took Justin Thomas when he was at 28 to 1. I think that may still be out there somewhere in the market. Um, but other than that, I feel like I kind of miss a boat because I, I will not be betting John Rahm or Rory McElroy pre-match here. Maybe something in play with those guys because my numbers love them both. But again, no value for me if they're sub, you know, 13 to 1 right now. You know, it's a funny answer that you gave to that because you can be, we'll backtrack it like to the very beginning of that part of it. Um, you can be right about John Rom being completely overvalued and he still might win the tournament. Like that's the important- I expect him to win. <laughs> yes. And that's the important thing to keep in mind is just because I also agree John Rom is overvalued, but Nick and I can both be correct with that assessment while he still goes out and wins, wins this tournament. So um, you know, from a betting perspective, we're trying to find long-term value that we can increase the bankroll. Neither one of us are ever going to put ourselves in a position to where we're putting negative win equity returns out there into the space. Um, I think for me, from like the very top, this is this is wishful thinking. This is not going to happen. I wanted 16 to one on Scotty Scheffler. Like that was the number yeah. that if I could have gotten a 16 to one, I would have so quickly punched that ticket. And maybe there's somebody out there that opens up their book and you never know with these spots to what something might drift to, but uh, Scheffler at 16 to one would be a play that I really want to go to. And then uh, Nick kind of alluded to this a second ago. I have found Justin Thomas is out there in the space at 26 to one. I still like that number. And I also like Patrick Cantlay at 24 to one. Those are the two guys that kind of have the best win equity returns that I could find in my model that were not those big, you know, three or four names that are sub 15 to one options. Now we're only talking about a couple of points in each spot. I don't think it's the greatest betting board that I've ever seen before with that. And, you know, maybe none of that is the fun answer that everybody wants to hear, but to me, and I would assume you kind of agree to this, Nick, based off of your answer, it almost feels like we're dart throwing this board right now after books recalibrated their numbers on Monday. A hundred percent. And that like, that's the issue. Like I sure I expect John Rory to win. But for me, and, and maybe this is a good teaching point for the listeners out there too, and I know you're similar because I kind of built my golf betting cards off of your you know, proven model, your proven history of succeeding in this space for multiple, multiple years. 
But for me to hit, like I'd like to build my outright card, I think to hit minimum of 7.5 units in return. To achieve that, I'd almost have to lay 1.1 units on John Rahm to win. Other, yeah. you know, in comparison, I could bet 0.6 units on Scotty Scheffler to hit that mark, if not a little bit less. Like I'd much rather take, you know, a lot less risk on and go with the Scotty Scheffler route. But again, like you said, we're kind of dart throwing here because any of these guys could win. So that's kind of why I strongly believe there's no value in Rory McIlroy at eight to one. There's no value in John Rahm at seven to one. And having said that, I don't know if there's much value in Scotty Shuffler at 13 to one. I think 15 to one was the the mark that I had to go find in the, uh, in the betting space to, to bet Scotty. Cause right when I ran my numbers, I saw him right there. Number one is like perfect. Saw the price that I had him at. I was looking for 15. It's not there. Like you said, 16 would have been fantastic. So that's that's kind of my my issue here. I'm not laying 1.1 units on John Rom to win in this loaded of a field. Like you said, what do you say? 22 of the top 24 golfers in the world are here. There's there's just so much win equity in this field in general that I just can't get there at John Rom a seven to one pre-match. Yeah, and I think it kind of goes back to the point that you just said a second ago where one of the most dangerous things, if you're a new better out there or even somebody who's been in the space for a long time, I would say one of the most dangerous things you can do is be one of those gamblers that counts how many wins that they have in a year that it needs to be like, I almost think that when you're hitting outright after outright after outright, you're putting too much exposure on the line with it. And there's some people that are better than others when it comes to being more aggressive and hitting bets. And uh, that's not me. Like, I'll tell you that right now. I feel like I'm more aggressive than most people are. And even still, like, I'm only trying to hit a winner. I mean, in an ideal world, one out of every, like, 10 tournaments would be f- perfectly fine with me to try to generate a profit from that. But uh, even when I get more aggressive with these cards, like, it's not going too much above that range with it. So uh, I-, I think that's just important to keep in mind that just because you've hit 10 outright winners, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily won more money than the person that's hitting two or three if things are structured in the wrong way with it. Yeah, the way I structure my card, I rarely go over one and a half to two units at risk in the outright market. But I've said on the beginning of the show too, my bread and butter that, you know, track what you're doing. That'd be something that I would highly recommend, you know, bet, you know, track each market you're betting and track how much you're betting it. See what your ROI is per market and then really start to find your niche. And to me, it's been the finishing positions and mainly that top 40. So Before that, we get that in, is the the method to my madness, at least to why I do what I do. Everybody has a market that they find their majority of success. And for me, it's head to head wagers. And uh, I'm going to move us into the head to head wagers before we get into your plays this week. Is there anything that you have on the head to head front that you like? I know we've talked about this. There's not a ton in the space this week. Um, I'll let you talk about why that's the case with it. But anything that you found? No. No, unfortunately, I usually have one or two and I kind of force myself to get one or two. I was close to getting new a few on bet three, six, five, but nothing that I, I found an, enough value on. So right now my card is pretty bare. I do have a lot more at risk at the top 40 market, but right now currently my card is 3.19 units at risk. I think I'll probably finish right around four and then leave one unit for in play betting this week. So I've kind of um, allocated five units at risk for this tournament. If I don't get there, I'm fine with that. If if it closes at 3.19 units at risk, nah, that, that's fine with me. I think another piece of advice would just be don't force a bet. So 
Yeah, I don't think you ever need to fill out a card to reach a certain quota on it. Like that's the another very important thing just to throw out yep. there. If if your car only dictates having 3.91 units, then your car only has 3.91 units because there's going to be weeks where everything stands out for you and you're going to end up with 10 plus units on those tournaments. And uh, take your spots where you have them. There's no need to force when you don't. Uh, with all of that being said, I will give one head-to-head play on here. You're going to have to shop around to find it. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because most of my plays are always a race to try to get the number before it moves. I don't think that's going to be a problem here with all the reverse theme that I've seen over the past few hours on this wager. Maybe I can help do my part to stabilize the market. Although I will be the first to admit that shops do not respect the spot side that I'm about to give out on here. This is me trusting my math and this is me trusting my numbers above anything else. I'm going to take Scott Stallings at plus 100 over Denny McCarthy. Sure, this play has some issues no matter how we run the data. I would have had this closer to minus 120 than the plus 100 price we received. Uh, It is worth noting that I don't often give a play with only 20 points of value on any of these shows. I do think we'll be okay in this spot since I expect the number to stay put or get better. But be aware if we see things shift back in Stallings' direction before Thursday. From a numerical standpoint, McCarthy's always going to be a golfer who negatively gets affected by the lack of data that I run for putting. We have seen anything with the flat stick reduced by nearly five or 6% over the past few iterations of this contest. And while I can't say his recent run has pushed him into a territory where he doesn't belong, it remains one of those situations where the data looks questionable across the board. You know, Nick, I don't know if you've noticed this during the coverage. I've heard this in like three straight tournaments with him. I keep hearing coverage talk about his approach game getting better. Have you noticed that? Yeah, and it's not. It's like, not what's stop, yeah, stop that. It is not. Like when you it's look very at, erratic. It, yeah, it, it gets a, hot sometimes, of course. But sorry, I'm I'm heated on that one. My apologies. No, and I, I don't understand I don't understand that because like when you look at my model, he ranks 124th for weighted proximity to mimic, mimic this course over a two-year sample size. It's 116th when running the same splits over only the past 24 rounds. Like that's not a player that's increasing their projected approach metrics across the board. Now, if we do want to find where the improvement's taking place, the ball striking looks better. The par five scoring has increased. I think that's a really big one for him for why he's found success. Uh, the GIR percentage over his extended data maybe is part of the reason. Like if you want to say that that's the reason why the approach play is better, sure. But to me, that's also not adding increase of projected proximity. So it's kind of this flawed statistic that we keep going back to. And my model seems to be in the spot to where it thinks McCarthy is more flat stick than anything else. And when you have a course that's diminishing the flat stick in the way that I want to run the model with it, I think there's a reason why he's finished 59th place or worse uh, in his last three starts at this venue. Now, none of that is to say Stallings is the perfect opponent by any means. He ranks 46th overall compared to McCarthy's 86th place total. But we do have steady course history, and maybe this is where I am a little bit more of a course history believer than Nick. Uh, You know, and to me, that means something here to when he gets a boost there. We also saw a nice season turnaround at Pebble. That's something I didn't even include from a statistical perspective when I ran my numbers for this week. Um, I know your thoughts here. I know this wasn't your favorite play on the board. Is there anything that you want to add to that? Have I convinced you whatsoever that there might be some value in this play? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not a Scott Stallings guy, but he did look good at Pebble, so that's good to see him turn it back around. But 
you kind of tuned in on, on the point we were trying to drive across earlier. This is a perfect example of where you want to look at course history when you're trying to find value in, the, in this. Like, obviously, your numbers said there's value in that. So I love that. Um, I'll, I'll usually trust it. I usually just blindly take any matchup that you're betting because you're on a heater at those. I mean, pretty much throughout your whole career. So I think I'll lean that way. I just, I don't know. Like you said, you also worded it perfectly. I don't know if Scott Stallings is the best guy to pick on Denny McCarthy, but that is a perfect example of when I would start to divert to course history and and what that matters for that matchup. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why in general too, like I run my model a couple different ways. Like the first way when I run it overall, that always takes more of the course history aspect into account because I want to see how somebody places for a top 40 bet for a matchup wager. When I get more aggressive and I run things for upside, and that would be from like just purely a statistical standpoint. I like I understand that this player has not found success at this course, but I believe that they should over a duration of time if they continue to play here. I think Aaron Wise is a really good example of that. I don't trust Aaron Wise whatsoever. Thank I think you. he I think he might miss the cut, but he also has win potential. And that's what you're looking for when you place an outright bet in these situations is find me the guy who's the positive climber for win equity, even if it means that the floor output is, you know, as low as possible. Yeah, that is Aaron Wise on Fast Greens. So once again, the Links and Locks podcast is proudly presented by Bet365, the world's favorite sportsbook brand. Sign up with promo code ACTION to get Bet365's exclusive sign-up offer in New Jersey and Colorado. Bet $1 on any game, get $200 free. Nick, we're going to move into your favorite market here. And I will say this, I feel like the three of us have had a lot of success recently when talking directly about Bet365's over-under placement markets on this show. I went 3-0 last week at Pebble Beach. I hit the better than portions of Grayson Sig and Brendan Todd. Uh, the worst than answer for Ryan Palmer came in. Although, you know, I think it's one of those things where you, you want to find as much value as you can in these space. Obviously, like we're laying minus 120. So we don't want to just blindly try to take as many as we can. I do have three wagers that I'm going to talk about on this show. They're all to finish better than in this spot. Um, do you want to talk about your placement card before I get to that? Sure. Yeah, I will run that through. Um, Tommy Fleetwood, play of the week, top 40, plus 120, I believe is the best price out there. I I mean, my numbers are, look, they love him. It's a ball strikers course. He is one of my favorite ball strikers. My model seems to love him in terms of the ball striking data. That's, you know, I have to kind of manipulate it a little bit based on the yardages we talked about earlier. But just shopping around to looking at some of the sharp books out there, I saw that Tommy Fleetwood was a relatively sizable favorite in a matchup over Sam Burns. Sam Burns' price in the top 40 market is minus 160. I had Tommy Fleetwood at minus 120, so I got 40 points of value there, if not minus 130 in the other iteration that I ran, the one that I tweeted about earlier today. So 40 to 50 points of value for me on Tommy Fleetwood to finish top 40 is probably my favorite play so far of 2023. Also found a little bit of value on JJ Spawn top 40 uh, plus 125 seems to be an agnostic price out there at any book. Um, Think about JJ Spawn. He does have, you know, quote unquote, decent course history here. He's a guy that I believe has two top 50 finishes, and those were multiple years ago when he was significantly inferior of a golfer than he is today. It's much better off the tee. Iron play is significantly better around the green is improved, and he's become a pretty solid putter. Um, a guy that is coming into this in really good form outside of the miscut in his last event, but this guy did just compete with all the best golfers in the world. Not all of them, but, you know, majority of the best golfers in the world at the century. 
found himself to a 12th place finish there. So I think to get, you know, plus 125, I have him at minus 105. So 30 points of value on the dot there, which is usually the kicker that I'm looking for. So JJ Spawn, top 40. I mentioned the Zayden Hout. I think I'd wait and see if you can get a two to one there. If not, just fade that play in general. And then wanted your opinion on Taylor Pendrith, top 40. I believe you can get plus 130 on bet 365. I have him at even money there but I have a very hard time handicapping Taylor Pendrith. It's a guy that I, I seem to love to, to get exposure to in any sort of market, whether that's betting, DFS, season-long fantasy, just a guy that I, I believe in, but the he's just so erratic. What are your thoughts on Taylor Pendrith? He's going to need to hit fairways to succeed here, so I think at plus 130, I'd probably recommend a stay away because the miscut equity there, especially with how erratic his ball striking can be, Um. But I did have notable value on that. So what are your thoughts on Taylor Pendrith and then J.J. Spawn and Tommy Fleetwood? Can I change that answer for Pendrith a little bit? Please. So I think Pendrith is extremely volatile. I want to preface it by saying no that. Yep. And and when a golfer is as volatile as we're seeing with Taylor Pendrith and my model thinks that there's upside that's being run, like this is the same answer that we were just talking about with Aaron Wise, not to keep going back to with him. I would rather push the envelope a little bit and bet him to come top 20 or bet him to come top 30 or whatever makes most sense with it. Like when I look at Pendrith in my model, he's 36 overall. He climbs to 24th overall when I run this for upside. Uh, when I run it for safety, all of a sudden he out, he's outside the top 50 there. So uh, I typically like to push the envelope as much as possible when that situation comes into play. The one negative that I'll say about Pendrith, if I'm just looking at like matchups in the space, if you just want to take any random book out there, he's a pretty substantial dog to almost every single person that I can find. So I'll just like very quickly go through this. Um, he's a pretty big dog to Adam Hadwin. He's a dog to your boy, Tommy Fleetwood. He is even to uh, Wyndham Clark and he is a dog to Sahith Tagala. Yeah, I said I'll respect the the Gala one because, you know, I think they're you know he's an upside golfer. Obviously, really he's got course history here too. We all know that people are gonna love that. But being even to Wyndham Clark is a yes. turn off. That if that guy's just as volatile, if not more than Taylor. And and I guess like you can get away with some of that. Like I don't want a matchup play to be indicative of what somebody should do in other markets because. Pendrith can be, I think like the head to head answer there kind of signifies that we have an extremely volatile golfer that there are concerns about of what he's going to do over four days, or even if he makes it to four days. Now, the opposite end of that answer is if we believe he has upside, he comes into play as a top 20 wager. So I guess yeah. I like him as a top 20 bet there. I don't know if I'm necessarily as high as you are. Uh, with JJ Spawn, but I would give the same exact answer that I gave for him. I think he almost makes more sense as a top 20 play. He has a lot of those same climbing trajectory totals in my model there. And then uh, who's the third player that I'm missing? Fleetwood? Yeah, of course. The lock button. You don't even have to talk about him if you don't want it. I, Fleetwood's 23rd overall in my <laughs> model. Where is he in yours? 26th. Yeah. So, I mean, there's going to be value, I'm sure. Like, however. Actually, we sorry. Run. 19th. 19th. I was looking at. JJ Spawn, 26 for him. I always like Fleetwood. I think Fleetwood's one of those golfers, and I think you can say this about a lot of the European players. They're just widely undervalued because they don't play here enough, and Fleetwood has made more of an impact on the PGA Tour over the past couple of years 
and then some of his counterparts that you might want to compare him to. I, you know, I think a guy like Hatton has been so European centric over the past like six months that a lot of people are forgetting about him. I tend to like him this week. I don't even know in what capacity that answer is coming from. Like, I don't necessarily think he's going to win the tournament, but there might be a head-to-head matchup you can find. Maybe you can find some sort of a top 20 bet on him where you can find value. There's other markets out there where he's going to be very under-owned with it. But yeah, I mean, I think these European golfers in general are pretty undervalued when you look at the betting board. Yep, for sure. That's all I got, though. I guess I'll just very quickly go through my top 40 plays and the other placement bets that I have. So uh, I took Davis Thompson at plus 220 to come top 40. I would like to get your thoughts on him, but my model continues to believe Thompson is the real deal and is being undervalued in almost all of these sectors. We always have to be careful in the limited data when we run things for this short of a duration of time, but his early returns grade as if he's a top 10 ball striker in the world. Sure, the short game metrics are damaging and potentially going to be an issue moving forward. That is going to be the one thing he needs to clean up if he wants to actually like get himself into being a top 10 or 20 player in the world. But Nick, I can't say very often I've seen a player that's this good from a ball striking perspective. Even if we are talking about a limited sample size, like I regressed the data for him and he still managed to be inside the top 15 for me in that area. So uh, I think you could make an argument that he kind of fits that same bill of he's a better top 20 bet than anything else. But I saw the, I saw the plus two twenty number and I kind of went for it. Um, If you want to shoot for a higher total than that, I'm all for that. Like my model prefers him as a top 20 or 30 bet than a top 40 bet even. Yeah. I'd say the volatility there for sure. And how bad the short game is like, you just, you take the top 20, hope he really gets after it this week. And I think that's a fine number for that play. Yeah, I, I like that. And then the three bet three, six, five plays, these will all be 0.60 units to win 0.50. Uh, that's Brian Harmon to finish 49th or better. I know Harmon is not a guy that you're going to want to talk about. So no coming. Yeah, we'll quickly get past him. Um, my favorite play on the board, probably JT Poston 50th or better. I just think his combination of his built-in floor and whatever you want to consider his ceiling being, which even if we say the ceiling is like a top 20 finish, I think that's fine when you're looking at a top 50 type of wager there. And then I took Keith Mitchell at 47th or better. If I was to power rank these, it'd probably be Poston 50th or better, Harmon 49th or better, and Mitchell 47th or better. You know, part of that comes down to, I'd rather get a couple extra spots there. I also have Poston the highest in my model, Harmon the second highest, and Mitchell the third highest. But uh, I think it's an interesting position for each one of these. Like Poston's probably one of the better values I can find on the board since he checks all three boxes of statistical makeup, course history, and current form. I do like the bounce back ability for Brian Harmon after his miscut at the American Express. Even with that miscut, he still leads the field with 34 consecutive rounds of shooting par or better. That's a number that's 12 better than Xander Shoffley and 14 ahead of Patrick Cantlay. And then Mitchell has the potential to be a little bit all over the map. I guess that's my problem with this wager. If we are looking for downside, like it's the same thing with Mitchell that we've talked about with Thompson or any of these other players, there is volatility at the end of the day, but I can't find very many players that have a better combination of total driving and par five scoring ability than he performs in my model. So you know, it's going to be an extremely light card for me unless I can find some in-tournament bets to grab in general. But 
Uh, I guess we talked a little bit about Thompson. Do you have any thoughts on those other three or other two, if you want to just bypass Harmon altogether? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm in for those two. Yeah, I'm not on Harmon though. I don't know. I mean, I just think the Harmon number's too good for the safety that he provides. But then again, it's one of those situations to where we are laying a buck 20 of juice. Like you can't make mistakes in this area. Like it's going to add up quickly. So um, if you were to play one, Poston would be the play. And then the other two yes. are very close from there. Poston is my guy there. Absolutely. All right, Nick, anything else you want to talk about before we let everyone get out of here today? No, just enjoy it. I think it's, it's a, it's the best tournament to probably watch on TV outside of Augusta. It's a extremely fun tournament in that regard. Like if you're a casual golf fan, uh, I can promise you, you watch this tournament, it's going to turn you into a golf fan. And if you're a hardcore golf fan, uh, you're not going to see anything like it throughout the entire year. And I tend to like these tournaments that are different. This tournament is different from a spectacle standpoint. It's the same reason why I like the match play. We just don't get that every single week. And it adds a completely different dynamic and layer to the equation here. So uh, this is probably one of my five favorite tournaments for all of those reasons. And I think it's going to be a fun week. But uh, perfect. So you can find my partner on Twitter at Sticks I can be located at Tia Sports. And we once again want to thank everyone who tunes into the show weekly and makes us a part of their weekly handicapping process. Good luck with all your wagers for the Waste Management Open. And we'll see you back here a week from now on Links and Locks presented by Bet365. Good luck, everybody. Get after it. Action Network reminds you, please gamble responsibly. If you or someone you care about has a gambling problem, help is available 24-7 at 1-800-GAMBLER.